Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first, joining us is Fane Greenwood of Tarantum Consulting, uh, who is also a contributor to such august publications as Slate and Foreign Policy. Uh, She is an expert on commercial drones and how they are used for national security applications from wartime, as in Ukraine, to humanitarian and disaster uh, relief. Fane, thanks so very much for joining joining us. Great to have you on the program. That's great to be here. Uh, An absolute pleasure. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting and trade show was sponsored by Leonardo DRS and Safran. Um, Fane, uh, thanks very much for uh, joining us again. Normally, we have uh, our mutual friend Sam Bendet of the Center for Naval Analyses here, but he suggested that we have you on the program, and I thought that was a great call uh, to talk to us um, a little bit in more nuanced fashion of the critical role, uh, not just of unmanned systems. I mean, everybody knows that today, for example, Kiev uh, was struck by uh, Russia using Iranian uh, drones that it acquired from Tehran, uh, but an all manner of small, medium, and large commercial unmanned aircraft uh, are playing a role being militarized uh, by both sides uh, in this. What are the assortment of commercial capabilities that are being used uh, on the battlefield right now? And what what does that in turn tell us about what the state of the commercial art is that can be adapted for military use in the future? Sure. So uh, the the vast majority of the drones being used in Ukraine are developed by a Chinese company, DJI, which has been the market leader in the consumer drone space since about 2013. The consumer drone boom in in both North America and the rest of the the planet really began in approximately 2013 when DJI, in January 2013, introduced the DJI Phantom, which is the antecedent of the super popular DJI Mavic drones you now see on the battlefield in uh, Ukraine and in Russia. These drones have uh, proliferated around the world since 2013. Um, They've been sold for civilian purposes. They were developed out of a hobbyist uh, Hobby uh, mobile, uh, hobby RC helicopter and RC aircraft community primarily in the 2000s, and uh, with the rise of small microprocessors for OL phones, it became very inexpensive and easy to build DIY drones, and uh, that eventually produced this uh, consumer model, the DJI Phantom, which was really the first that you could go out and buy at the store in 2013. You could put a GoPro on it, and you could go out and capture, you know, cool video and imagery. And quickly, people quickly discovered that you could also use these drones for uh, making maps. They're uh, GPS enabled. So you can make right. really um, excellent maps with them. So a lot of civilian data collection applications. I, I worked in the humanitarian, da- humanitarian disaster space. So um, a primary use of drones in that space is uh, post-disaster mapping and uh, data collection after disasters for right. GIS analysts and others. Now, so these drones around these drones proliferated around the world. They're extremely inexpensive. They're easy to get. They're as easy to get as an iPhone. I think a lot of people have assumed necessarily that DJI, DJI, the Chinese company, stopped selling its drones directly to Russia and I believe to the Ukrainian markets uh, fairly early in the war. However, um, of course, it's quite easy because they're so common. They're very easy to obtain and bring into Russia. That's where the these sources are coming from. Russia, not directly from China, because they're so incredibly 
these drones are incredibly easy to obtain pretty much everywhere in, in the world at this point. And um, so we're seeing, yeah, I get DJI products, DJI Mavic. It's a small folding drone um, that is, uh, has a really high quality camera. There's a DJI Mavic 2 is an older model. DJI Mavic 3 is a newer model. Costing approximately, I'm going to say off the top of my head, $2,000 range in the U.S. market. The prices are getting jacked up, obviously, in Russia for right. obvious reasons. Um, but they are kind of, that's kind of the Cadillac model. Um, and in terms of other drones, you're going to be seeing DJI Spark. It's a small model. A smaller hobby model, you're seeing the FPV models, which actually use um, goggles that help the pilot uh, fly more quickly. They're commonly used for racing, but uh, they've also have been used for surveillance purposes. Um, you're getting, um, you're also getting people using um, heavier lift drones, like uh, the DJI Matrice 300 is commonly sold for use by uh, map makers. It's commonly sold for use by security professionals, like police in the United States. That's also being obtained by um, people on both sides of Ukraine and Russia because they can carry pretty large objects, which is useful for both carrying thermal sensors. These are thermal sensor equipped drones. There's the DJI X-T2 sensor with uh, FLIR capabilities, but you can also of course carry heavier objects for dropping things. And um, another- Yeah, so all, all manner of things, including things that go boom. Exactly. And so sensors, things that go boom, it's also pretty easy to swap out the sensors. So they're fairly easy to modify. And another thing, of course, key element here is drones that are DIY or hobby built drones. Um, in Ukraine, the hobby commu drone community has been f engaged in the battle against Russia since 2014. One of the earliest, the Ukrainian uh, drone hobby community, were one of the earliest to really start to adopt their technology for civil security purposes back in 2014, that, that Russian invasion at that time. And they've been working on that ever since. So they, they really right. put their hobby skills into use. So, for example, Erezvidka. Um, which is that really the famous Ukrainian um, drone group build a lot of their own quadcopters, add their own sensors. They do use commercial stuff as well. They're, so they're a combination of stuff people buy on the shelf, stuff people build themselves, and we're seeing it on both sides. So both Ukrainians and Russians are using DJI products and as well as other commercial products. Thanks for that terrific roundup. So what does this mean about where this capability is going to be in a couple of years and how actually Western militaries need to think uh, about the adoption of it, right? I mean, it was interesting uh, about China. There were a lot of Ukrainian concerns, for example, that the Chinese would interfere um, with Ukrainian access to it. And there looked like there was a little bit of that um, where, where the Ukrainians seem to have gotten around some of these problems. But what does this tell us about where commercial capability fain is going to be in a couple of years and how actually modern frontline militaries need to think about perhaps adopting some of these capabilities or like capabilities? I think it's going to, uh, so the China's interference stuff is still, I think, confirmed per se, but I think, um, I do think that's going to drive motivation towards like getting away from Chinese products, making sure that we're less dependent on Chinese products. We're looking more towards stuff that uh, we have more control over, more US-based companies, more Western-based companies, for example. I think it'll hopefully motivate some more market motivation to compete with DJI. And, and what are some of the capabilities, though, that you see uh, both payload-wise and otherwise, right? I mean, a lot of uh, companies are working on this or everything from like, you know, uh, you know, at-home delivery. I know Amazon was very prominently working on this. What, what, are, what are, what, what's sort of the future of the market? Because now a lot of it is very, very small, whereas we're going to be going to bigger, right? Where, as, as you look a couple of years forward, what do you see in terms of the capability that folks will be able to buy off the shelf that goes beyond sort of racing and little stuff? Yeah, I think we'll certainly see but more and better sensors. I think it'll become more hot swapping sensors that are easily swappable. I think we'll see more sensors that are able to collect uh, map data and do 3D mapping more effectively. That's a huge use case in the space. 
And in terms of dropping uh, delivery, I think delivery is still pretty nascent. It's that's a hard to, nut to crack, but I do think we'll see more more developments in that space. And also, I think we will see companies wondering about if they want to be producing things that can be used by militaries. It's a PR, kind of a PR nightmare. So there's going to be some interesting developments there. I can't predict, but at least you see what happens there. Um, it's it's interesting uh, that you say that, and it, it paves my uh, paves the way into the next question, right? Since the very inception of this, everybody's understood the benefits of having a robust commercial uh, drone environment for delivery, uh, as you said, humanitarian and disaster, humanitarian aid and disaster relief, a hatter application, uh, which you've done uh, upfront work on, right? I mean, you could see how they're useful in the wake of Ian or, or a major hurricane. But at the same time, they can also be used as weapons, precision weapons, right? If, if I can go for a couple of hundred bucks or a couple of thousand bucks and buy something that carries enough of a payload to go boom, uh, you know, we've seen assassination attempts uh, be, being, uh, uh, you know, attempted. And indeed, we operationally saw to some surprise uh, in, in America's recent wars how adversaries were able to, to adapt. How do societies have to think about commercial drones that can be weaponized and and you know, be, be used as effectively in Washington, D.C., uh, as they can be by the Ukrainian army against Russian forces or by Russians against Ukrainians. I, I, I've long taken the opinion that at this point, I think they're becoming it's kind of similar to something like an iPhone or a car in the sense that it's a technology that you can use for both offensive purposes and for purely civilian applications. Civilian applications are so widespread and so commercially valuable that I think that there, it would be silly to dispose with those. I think what we're doing is we are producing more systems for air traffic control in the United States and other countries uh, that incorporate drones that will help us control them. We're certainly, we're going to see a lot more development in the counter drone space. Uh, stuff like a DJI's aeroscope is one example. After we'll see much more development there as people become aware of the risk. But uh, I think they're going to exist together. And I think that uh, the technology is going to persist and it should persist. It's got a, a lot of incredible benefits. Um, are the counter drone systems, right? I mean, almost everybody, you know, almost everybody, it was interesting at the Association of the United States Army's uh, annual meeting and, and trade show, right? I mean, everybody was talking about precision strike and drone and counter drone. Where are the counter drones? Because some, some of them are, you know, dogfighting drones that take you out kinetically. Others are trying to use it through electronic means. Um, you know, obviously now there are lasers that can be uh, used. What are some of the drones that societally the counter drone systems, you know, for each development, there's a counter development. How effective are the counter systems to defend, for example, say Washington, D.C. or New York or other major metropolitan areas against threats like this potentially? I think that it's I think that it's hard to uh, say for sure how effective they will be in the U.S. or the D.C. context. I will say that I think that in the Ukraine war, we're certainly getting an amazing look at what works and what doesn't. I would say that at the beginning of the war, a lot of analysts predicted that consumer drones, the DJI products, would become useless almost immediately because uh, the Russians would deploy counter drone systems that would become fall out of the sky. That wouldn't. That was proven uh, very, uh, very not true very quickly in the conflict. So I think we, it's indicated that counter drone systems that we thought that Russians were using are not as effective as we perhaps had assumed. Um, we're also seeing, so the small drones have become effective. So it's going to be an interesting natural experiment. I think we'll be studying this for many years to come is uh, what we're seeing in Ukraine and Russia and how we can um, learn from that to improve our own counter drone systems. But uh, yeah, I, I can't, uh, I'm not sure I can make any predictions on how effective they'll be in the DC context at this time. Uh, th thank you, thank you very much for not for thoughtfully not committing to that um, <laughs> uh, because because we are shooting at a moving target. We've got about thirty seconds left. Talk to us uh, about uh, your very unique 
database that people should be interested in? Certainly. But since the war began, I've been documenting open source information um, on commercial drone use in the Ukraine and Russian war. I've got a Excel database that I've been building out over 800 entries at this point, I think. And um, I'm hoping to use this research, use this database to facilitate future research in how drones are being used in the war and help us learn from these things as we move forward. And it's an open resource and anybody can use it. And I'd love to get feedback and thoughts. Uh, and uh, what are uh, the top use cases uh, for it, uh, uh, for drones as they're being used in Ukraine, right? I mean, what's sort of the top takeaways uh, from the database? Certainly. Uh, by far the most widespread use is documentation followed by targeting. The drones are being used for improving intelligence and awareness of what's around. Uh, they're being used extremely widely for targeting uh, artillery strikes. That's incredibly widespread. And they are being used to a more limited extent for delivering explosives. But the, absolutely the primary use is information gathering and, and, and targeting. Fane, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it and look forward to have you, having you back on in, in the future to talk about this fascinating space we didn't even get into humanitarian and uh, disaster uh, relief, which we'd uh, love to talk to you as well. Thank you so much. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And joining us today, as he does most Mondays, is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners to discuss the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, welcome back. It was great to see you last week and thanks for joining us this week. Absolute pleasure as always, Vago. Uh, in, in, indeed. Uh, again, it was great to see you at AUSA. Uh, and we, when we saw one another, uh, the show was still young, Byron. It was uh, on Monday morning. Yeah. Uh, you were there all three days, as were we. What were some of your key takeaways? Well, I think the interesting part of the show, you know, the first thing is the number of competitions that are underway that really there wasn't a lot of talk about uh, for obvious reasons. I mean, these are in source selections. So things like the, the FLARA program between Lockheed and Textron, JLTV recompete, Crows recompete. Um, you know, and so, so it was interesting from that standpoint that, you know, the Army has some pretty big modernization decisions coming up and yet, there wasn't there wasn't really much that they can or should say on those competitions. Um, you know, I always think the value in going to these shows is is really it's seeing what's new and you know, kind of on the periphery uh, and you know how things have evolved over time. So, for example, you know, I was intrigued by how much bigger the General Motors defense display has become, uh, you know, they had one of the Roy Metal trucks that they're offering for this Army Common Tactical Truck Competition uh, that's in play. Um, and then to see, you know, Enduro, uh, Shield AI, you know, some of the some of the other new entrants, Palantir, you know, their, their presence just continues to grow at these shows. <clears throat> and I think that's important. The other thing is obviously the fact that AUSA is a little different than, than some of the other big trade shows in the Washington, D.C. metro area, the Air Force Association or Navy League shows, because it tends to have a higher international contingent. Um, so, you know, to see Rai Mattel, uh, the Koreans, Hanwha, the Israelis were out in force at this show. Um, you know, some of the big themes, I think, uh, certainly drones and counter drone technology, uh, that's, you know, kind of a, a bellwether for, you know, what you're seeing playing out in, in Russia and Ukraine right now, what has been playing out in the Arabian Peninsula for a while. Um, that that was one big theme. You know, 
oddly enough, I didn't think there was a whole lot that was of interest from a kind of industrial based munitions standpoint, um, at, at least not a lot where there seemed to be solutions. Now, maybe people talked about individually and some of the things that they could do, but arguably that's that's been a big shortcoming that's been you know highlighted by uh, by the war in Ukraine. You know, one of one of the things, uh, Byron, uh, you know, as, as you walked around the show, right? I mean, almost everything was a Ukraine uh, lesson, right? I mean, we heard from the army chief of staff that it validated, you know, the war in Ukraine is validating all 35 of the army's priorities, depending on how you look at it. Um, you know, there were some people who pushed back on then and say, you know, I mean, obviously, if you have 35 priorities, they're not really priorities yeah. uh, without being disrespectful to the chief at all. Um, and so everybody was talking about lessons learned, um, you know, from from your standpoint, um, was there a uniformity in lessons learned takes? Was there nuance, right? Because it, it tends to sort of become very homogenized, even though I will say, you know, we talked to Under uh, Secretary Gabe Camarillo and he had a more differentiated view of that. Uh, but I mean, just sort of your sense on whether or not sort of everybody's lessons learned or are just sort of to sell their own widget. I think I think it was more that as opposed, you know, it's going to take months, um, maybe maybe a year or two to really, you know, understand what what worked and what didn't work in, in this war and what maybe continue to work or not work in this war. So, yeah, you're right. Everybody can say, you know, my baby's beautiful um, and my baby's going to grow up to be the best student and the strongest athlete. But it doesn't always work out that way. And, and I, maybe maybe some of the things that were you know the initial uh takeaways from the war you know that armor is dead or that helicopters are dead you know you could argue there we've always gone through that cycles um and i don't think that's a surprise at all uh there was a presentation by um one of the people at rusi spoke on a panel the royal united services institute and noted you know, at least, and he's been over to Ukraine and, and shared some of his thoughts and observations that actually it was two Ukrainian armored, uh, a Ukrainian armored brigade and two artillery brigades. They're really the decisive elements in defeating the initial Russian attacks uh, in, in the northern part of the country towards Kiev. And, you know, that kind of flies in the face of, oh, it was it was ATGMs and, and small drones that really turned the tide here. Um, so I think, you know, you just have to take time to really thoroughly see what this is uh, going to. It took a long it took a while. Let me let me back up three, two, one. I think it's going to take months, if not years, because, you know, there's just a lot we don't know. Uh, on both, you know, both sides on how the Russians performed or didn't perform and then how the Ukrainians are performing and what they've been doing. And obviously some of that's going to be classified, but it will eventually make its way out. And, and I think it will better inform uh, some of the some of the paths that not only the U.S., but European and other militaries are, are planning in the future. And just really quickly, the um, uh, the Royal United Services analyst you're talking about is Jack Watling. Uh, and I commend the audience to uh, check out that uh, discussion uh, in part because 
uh, it is particularly interesting in terms of lessons learned, and we've only scratched the surface of it. Let me shift uh, gears uh, a little bit. Uh, your note uh, today discussed U.S. concerns with China's civil military uh, fusion. Obviously, the Chinese Communist Party meeting uh, over the coming week, uh, the meeting started yesterday in order to coronate Xi Jinping uh, as uh, one in the pantheon of lifelong leaders or paramount leaders uh, of the People's Republic of China. Uh, and, and U.S. officials have expressed concerns about the civil military uh, fusion. On the other hand, that's exactly what we've been trying to achieve for the last three decades. Uh, indeed, even more so with Ash Carter's sort of drive to pull Silicon Valley um, into this. What's, from your standpoint, problematic about us raising concerns about this? Well, you have to do it, right? I mean, it's just, you know, just accept that there are consequences. And, and the consequences could be that China increasingly is going to look at uh, the diversified companies that address the U.S. defense market. You know, I'm thinking of companies like Raytheon or Boeing uh, that, uh, you know, China is an important aerospace market for them. But at the same time, you know, I think we'd, we'd have the same view. Why would we be buying Chinese commercial aerospace products if it's helping strengthen a Chinese defense sector that's primarily geared towards defeating our military. And so I don't know where this goes, Vago, um, but I think, you know, would it eventually make sense for those businesses, you know, the defense operations of Boeing and Raytheon to be standalone companies? Um, Honeywell might be another one that fits that category where they could do business uh, with China uh, with, on a commercial basis, commercial aerospace basis, but um, the defense business is really hived off in, in, uh, in a separate entity. And maybe some of that is cosmetic in its own right. But, you know, the actions last week uh, really severing China's access to U.S. semiconductor technology uh, it, it were pretty significant. And, and I just think you have to expect there's going to be blowback for this. Now, that's probably, you know, it, it, it would really depend on how far China wants to go in some of this stuff, um, you know, but it could take years to really see through. I mean, they can't readily just cut their access off uh, to U.S. or European aerospace, but there's a trend here to watch. Uh, you know, China has sanctioned some individuals at Lockheed Martin and Raytheon already, um, you know, as this kind of technology trade war increases in scope and and uh and depth i think uh i just think it's something that we have to think through um you know what happens if the u.s really does lose access to the chinese aerospace market and, and maybe some other related markets that you know could could increase the cost of some u.s products could increase <clears throat> the the vulnerability of some of the smaller suppliers in this area i just think it's something people ought to be aware of or think through. Uh, as uh, a number of folks have said, right, nobody really cares if their lawn furniture is made in China or other goods that you could pick up at Target or something else. I mean, the issue is whether high tech goods and the challenges. But I mean, again, I mean, right, I mean, as you see this decoupling, uh, you know, is one of the reasons why Boeing has sort of pled with the U.S. government, don't be too tough on China, because, you know, we sell commercial aircraft uh, to China. Uh, note, uh, the last time Boeing sold a commercial aircraft to China was 2017. Uh, right. So, um, you know, we, we are already in the midst of that decoupling. Um, let me shift gears a little bit to uh, the political dynamics, because I also want to look at, uh, at uh, corporate fundamentals and then really quickly at the week ahead uh, at, as well. Uh, you 
have been looking at the political race. I mean, at one point, you know, Republicans were going to have a route. Then in the wake of the Dobbs decision, Democrats were uh, going to ride strong and maybe keep both houses. Now the consensus is actually that re Republicans are very quickly, uh, you know, closing the gaps that they had with uh, Democrats. And people do have a mental model that, hey, Republicans are uh, good for uh, defense. And you actually warn that actually may not be the case. Walk us through your uh, scenarios and how the uh, audience needs to be thinking about what might be to come. Because we heard from uh, Sash Tusa uh, yesterday, right? I mean, Britain had declared 3% of GDP. That was the consensus. British defense was going to ride strong. And very rapidly, you know, we're seeing that it could be a couple of years, up to five years, uh, and some say even maybe more before we get to a 3% GDP number, in part because of the condition the British economy is. Obviously, some of this is self-inflicted. Uh, but, but kind of give us your sense on the political political dynamic in the United States and whether the base case is for more defense spending, which is what folks are hoping for, but might not actually play out that way. Yeah, there, there are two things to, to follow through here. First, <clears throat> you know, when you see split party control in Washington, D.C., it usually means not a lot gets done, um, you know, including the defense budget. I think the immediate issue is the fiscal year 2023 appropriations bills. You know, those already are probably going to get kicked into next year. Uh, and I, I think you're going to see the return of the very strong disagreement between the two parties on non-defense discretionary spending. And unfortunately, defense tends to get wrapped up in that debate. Uh, that's what gave rise, frankly, to the Budget Control Act. You're going to see Republicans harp on government spending and the magnitude of the federal debt again. And, and unfortunately, you know, defense doesn't live in, in an isolated part of Washington, D.C. It's part of this broader budget debate that goes on. So the, the first issue is how long or how many CRs are you going to see for the FY23 budget to finally get done? Because it is going to be held hostage to non-defense discretionary spending. The other part that I think is important is there are elements of the Republican Party who don't believe that we should be giving as much aid as we are to Ukraine. And so how that plays through, you know, we see the, the reemergence of kind of this America first thinking um, that, uh, you know, we're, we're spending too much supporting Ukraine. Frankly, there are some people who have been supportive on the extreme right in the United States of Putin and his regime. So I just think <clears throat> there could be more debate and contention over <clears throat> things like uh, the, the magnitude of U.S. assistance that's being provided to Ukraine. And, and that might, frankly, open up markets for uh, European and Asian suppliers, uh, you know, if the U.S. starts to pull back on some of this stuff. Because I don't think the, the Ukraine war <clears throat> or the broader tensions and conflict surrounding that are going to go away anytime soon. Um, you also looked at uh, corporate fundamentals. Uh, obviously, we're going up into earnings uh, season. Um, what are some of your expectations? Um, there's not a lot that's <clears throat> brand new, I think, from an earnings standpoint. You know, Lockheed Martin will, will report earnings this week. You know, the fact is, I think as I just mentioned, <clears throat> there's a lot of positive uh, beliefs and views on where global defense spending is going to head. But, um, you know, the companies haven't seen, you know, the budgets haven't been passed yet in, in Europe and the United States. Yeah, there's some quick reaction stuff, uh, you know, contracts for things like Javelin and Stinger. Uh, but, you know, 
that that wave of higher defense spending hasn't really broken yet. And so you aren't going to see it show up in book to bill ratios. Uh, you know, the we just don't have budgets yet in, in Europe or, or the United States that really reflect all this. Um, supply chain issues are still going to be a fact of life. Uh, I really think it, it's going to be a discriminating factor. Some companies have been thoughtful and really working on this. I think the other companies that have been kind of the, the managements that have been the apostles of cost control um, and, and efficiency, you know, with without resiliency uh, are going to continue to struggle here. That may be something else to, to play through. Um, the growth, you know, we, we last two quarters, we saw negative organic growth for a lot of defense contractors, sales growth. It might be a little bit better, but that's more a question of comparisons. Uh, it, but I, I, I'll have a better bead for that later this week when the Treasury outlay data is released for September. Uh, and we can uh, have you on next week uh, to talk about this as we like uh, to discuss Treasury uh, data on this uh, show with you. Uh, very quickly, a very busy week, a lot uh, going on. Uh, what is it that the audience should be paying attention to? So Admiral Gilday, uh, Chief of Naval Operations, is going to be speaking at the Atlantic Council on Wednesday the 19th. Uh, there's going to be a, an event at uh, CSIS on Tuesday on uh, on Iran and you know what's been going on there. Um, there are some smaller defense-related events. There's a trade show going on in India this week uh, that that might be interesting for some of the news flow that comes out of that. Um, and you know, then I think just the other thing that I'm keeping an eye on is this legislation that got teed up last week on. Defense, U.S. defense exports to Saudi Arabia and kind of where that might go, you know, does that have any momentum? Because I think that's going to be an important issue too. Uh, and Chatham House on the uh, today. So if anybody wants to retroactively uh, check it out, war on Ukraine, uh, the state of the global response is a Chatham House event. Uh, and tomorrow, uh, The Hill uh, has an yeah. event on hypersonic weapons, right? Sure. Uh, just uh, as I as I look at your note, Byron. Yeah, uh, I, I, know. I was doing the highlights. Anyway, <laughs> Um, okay, uh, three, uh, two, one. Byron, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks very much for joining us and look forward to having you back on again next week. In the meantime, have a great week. Good. I look forward to it every week, Fago. Thank you. <laughs>